Today we will continue a long-running intermittent series on the book of Colossians, which we have studied whenever I have had the opportunity to preach in the past two years or so. Uh, We have seen how Paul greets and encourages the Colossians. We have seen him speak about the glory and the supremacy of Christ. We have seen him speak about his own ministry and how he was laboring for the Colossians and other churches like them. Then, for the entirety of chapter 2, we witnessed how Paul systematically dismantled the false teachings that were plaguing the Colossian church, teachings that aimed to diminish the supremacy of Christ and to encourage the Colossians to rely on other sources for their salvation and for their strength. Last time, we made our way through the first few verses of chapter 3, which were a crucial pivot point away from the assault on the false teaching and toward an extended portion that is upcoming where Paul will outline how the Colossians should live in light of the supremacy of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Today, we will be looking at verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, where Paul contrasts the sinful and desperate state from which the Colossians had been saved with their new state, saved by grace, and where he calls them to live out that reality. So please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. This is the inspired infallible, inerrant word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave free, but Christ is all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we do not have to grope in the dark to try to understand who you are, to try to understand how we might be reconciled to you, to try to understand how we should live in light of that, but that you have given your words that we might know all of these things, that we might study it. Lord, we pray that um, you would help us to understand your word today, to understand not only it's in an abstract sense, but how we might apply it to ourselves, to our own hearts. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
The sermon today will consist of two contrasting points. Firstly, the old self, and secondly, the new self. It's the old self and the new self. Sexually immoral, impure, passionate, desirous of evil, covetous, idolatrous, angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, obscene talkers, liars. These things we once were. I know the story of how it happened is familiar to virtually all of us. And it is extraordinarily easy for us to take the fallen state of humanity for granted. But we shouldn't. Adam and Eve were created pure and without sin. They were very good according to God's own words. They were free free to choose good or evil. They enjoyed free access to God without any barriers of separation, walking in the garden with him in the cool of the day, enjoying his very presence. All things were right with the world. To speak Presbyterian, all things were decent And in order. Then, on that fateful day when Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree and transgressed the one command that the Almighty God who loved them and created them gave them, everything changed. When you read the early chapters of Genesis, the consequences that pop off the page are the more immediate ones. Removal from the Garden of Eden, marital strife, pain and childbearing, cursing of the ground, even physical death. Yet the most damaging consequences were implicit rather than explicit. Because Adam was our federal head, our representative, We all sinned with him. We are born with his guilt upon us and with his desire to sin firmly rooted in us. Indeed, it is so rooted that Paul here in our passage portrays the unregenerate man and his sin as virtually synonymous the old self and its practices, he calls it in verse 9. And the more literally translated uh, New American Standard Bible translates verse 5 not as put to death therefore what is earthly in you, like the ESV does, but rather therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. There is no great difference in meaning between these translations, except that the more literal translation just illustrates how closely Paul relates the believer before their salvation with their sin. Their sins are members of their body, 
just as intrinsically connected with their being as their arms and their legs. John Calvin puts it well when he says that Paul conceives of our nature as being, as it were, a mass made up of different vices or sins. What are the practical outworkings of this in the lives of those who are still slaves to this sin? Paul provides us with two different groupings of sin, which, as many commentators point out, mirror each other in their order. Uh, The first list in verse 5 progresses from the outworking of sinful lust all the way back to its origin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Meanwhile, the second list in verse 8 progresses from the origin of wrongdoing against one's neighbor to its outworking. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then with lying added on in verse 9. Both lists contain sins that most people instinctually know are wrong. Sexual immorality, slander, obscene talk, and lying. While Western culture in many ways has normalized and glorified sin at a rapid pace in the past few decades, if you, still, if you were to interview people on the street here in Stuttgart, the vast majority would still say that it is at least usually wrong to cheat on one's spouse, that it is usually wrong to slander or to lie. Yet all of those sins that Paul listed are still extremely commonplace in society. Why is that? Because they have their origin in a long line of sin that starts in the deep recesses of the heart. Jesus spoke to this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 where he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in verses 21 through 23 of that same chapter, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Paul follows in Jesus' footsteps here when he prosecutes the sinfulness of man far beyond the outward sins. Sexual immorality comes from passion, an overwhelming drive for, in this case, something that is sinful. Where does this passion come from? Paul points to evil desire, 
the point where the heart first indulges and improperly directs its desire towards something improper, a desire that grows into a burning passion. I think we can often overlook the shocking sweep of these statements. Paul here is not just condemning desire attached with intention or lust, but the very desire itself for something that does not belong to us. As we see in verse 5, he calls this covetousness, which is idolatry. It was covetousness which sprang up in the hearts of Adam and Eve at the instigation of the serpent. Covetousness for something which did not rightly belong to them. They placed such a high worth on it that they were willing to disobey the very command of the God of heaven. And by doing so, it displayed how that fruit had become an idol. In fact, one could even say that they had made that fruit into their God. This covetousness so marks man's sinful nature that the author of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 could write that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This disordering of rightful desires tragically also extends to relationships between people. At the root of the sins of slander, of obscene talk, of lying, we find anger. Anger that in some way that other person has come in between us and whatever it is that we value more than them. This short-lived anger grows into a deep-seated, steadily burning wrathfulness, which in turn grows into malice, hatred, and the intention to harm the person who has dared to provoke our fury an intention which can manifest itself in anything from ill-tempered words to cold-blooded murder. It is because the internal aspects of these sins both proceed and are part and parcel of their external expressions that Jesus can say that the man who was angry with his brother or the man who looks at a woman with lustful intent are deserving of the same punishment as those who murder or those who commit adultery. In both cases, the worst sin has already been committed. Disobedience against God and the setting up of another person, another object, or even ourselves as a God in his place. It is then a right and proper thing that Paul says in verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. A good God, a righteous God, 
a just God, a holy God, cannot look upon, abide, or simply tolerate sin. His righteous wrath is kindled against it. The final arrival of his wrath, the overturning of the world, the final judgment where all who are living or who have died are called to account for the evil that they have committed is not a question of if, but of when. And there is not a single man, woman, or child who outside of union with Jesus Christ will not be proclaimed guilty and will not receive the just reward for their sin. This is the fate of the old self. Any person who is not renewed by the Holy Spirit remains in this state of slavery to their sin, to the sins of which we have spoken, with it clinging so closely to them that it can be called members of their body. The wrath of God is destined to come upon them, and there is nothing that they can do that we can do to change it. They, we, need a savior. In verse 7, Paul makes a crucial grammatical decision when talking about these sins to the Colossians. He uses the past tense. And in them... You also once walked when you were living in them. The Colossians, and by extension all believers, have been freed from this slavery to sin. In verse 9, he says that believers have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. How did this happen? By the grace of God, through faith, we have been united to Christ. No longer do we have Adam as our federal head, our representative, but instead it is Christ. And his perfect righteousness is accredited to us. Paul speaks about this at length in chapter 2 of the letter, where he says in verses 11 and 12, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Our old self has died with Christ. The chains of our slavery to sin have been destroyed. And as Paul says in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, the dreadful wrath of God is no longer hanging over us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In place of that old self that has been killed, that was enslaved to sin, that was destined for judgment, we have put on what Paul describes in our text today as the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. With this new self, we now have, once again, the ability to choose that which is good and to do that which is pleasing to God. Our true self, our true nature, is no longer made up of sin and vice. Instead, it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Day by day, the Holy Spirit is working within us, sanctifying us, and building us up in faith. Are we then, as believers, off the hook for fighting against the remnants of sin within us? Do we just lay back and trust that the Holy Spirit will make it all go away, all of our remaining sinful nature, and that we do not need to struggle against it? Or to take the thought in an even more radical direction that some people in church history have, does sin just not matter anymore? Is it the case that since Jesus died for our sin and that we will be made holy and glorified at our death, that we can just sin with abandon during the rest of our lives? As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Instead, as we can see in our passage today, as believers, we are called to put to death what is earthly in us and to put the sins of the old self all away. As we used to walk in the reality of our enslaved and sinful old self, so we must now walk in the reality of our freed and being sanctified new self. This need to actively live in accordance with an already settled and done reality can be a difficult concept to grasp, but I think John Calvin expressed it helpfully when he said regarding this passage that living and walking differ from each other as power does from action. Living holds the first place. Walking comes afterwards. It is impossible to act without the power to do so. But having the power to do something does not have an effect unless you act. In the same way we believers must use the new freedom that we have to kill sin and not just at the surface level. We must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, attack our sin at its very root in the inclination of the thoughts of the heart 
constantly redirecting ourselves from the things which our sinful flesh desires to worship back to the only true object of worship, our God. Just as Paul addressed the way in which relationships between individuals have been marred by sin in verses 8 and 9 of our passage, in verses 10 and 11, we see how they are restored. Day by day, we are being made more and more into the image of Christ, our creator, through the restoration of that original image which had been so marred by sin. As that happens, we are brought more and more into unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are undergoing the same process, tearing down the boundaries that would otherwise divide us and cause enmity between us. In verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There is not Greek and Jew. The barrier between nationalities and peoples has been torn down. Christians from Germany, from the United States, from Korea, from Brazil, and all around the world have more in common with each other, more natural unity with each other than they do with those who are not believers in their own countries. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. The division between Jew and Gentile, the limiting of the vast majority of the people of God to one people in one place is no longer. Circumcision This outward practice no longer counts for anything, positively or negatively. There is not barbarian and Scythian. The gospel is not limited to, nor is it even more applicable to or native to, cultures that we might consider superior. The Greeks called all people beside themselves barbarians, but the Scythians were held in an extra special contempt. Commentators cite multiple texts from the centuries around the time of Paul's writing of Colossians to show how the Scythians were seen as a uniquely brutal, uniquely savage people, incapable of living a civilized life or of any knowledge of philosophy or religion. There are stories of cities being burned, of of people taking, of the Scythians taking joy in the most horrendous of atrocities against conquered peoples. Yet Paul here shows that even this barrier is cast down. The gospel was just as much for the Scythians as for the Greeks and the Jews, and the Scythian Christian just as worthy of love and respect as a Greek Christian or a Jewish Christian. Finally, Paul says that there is not slave or free. Even those who the predominantly Greek culture 
in Colossae would have seen as, frankly, subhuman, as property, to do with as they willed. Their slaves were not exempt from this destruction of barriers. Considering that the letter to Philemon was also written to a member of this church in Colossae, asking for the master of the escaped slave, Onesimus, to show him mercy and to welcome him as a brother in Christ, this addition to the letter must have had a very close-to-home application to its original hearers. Even the biggest divide in society at that time, one which had its grounding in law and tradition and culture, could not withstand the unity that is brought about through the gospel in Christ. Though we all still have roles and duties in this life, superiors and people under our authority, regulations that we follow, and cultures which we are influenced by, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is a time coming when all of those distinctions will be stripped away. When the Colossian slave will worship alongside the American soldier. When the German engineer will worship alongside the tribesmen from Papua New Guinea. Where the reformers of the 16th century will worship alongside the faithful prophets of Israel. It will not seem strange. There won't be awkwardness. There won't be barriers of language or cultural understanding, but instead the unity that we will have in Christ will outshine anything that would divide us. And Christ will be, as Paul says, all and in all. If there is anyone here today who felt the weight of sin who feels the weight of sin, of judgment, and of the helplessness of the human condition apart from Christ, and sees and desires the beauty of a new self, of being remade in the image of Christ, and of finding unity in him, yet knows that they do not have that yet, I beg of you, repent. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone for your salvation. There is nothing else that you need to do. There is nothing else that you can do to be saved. You will not be denied, but instead you will be welcomed home as a long lost son or daughter and the very angels of heaven will celebrate. For those of us who do know Christ and have experienced this reality, let us be stirred to a new hatred for, a new aggressiveness toward our own sin. Let us be encouraged by this reality already existing of our new self. And let us strive to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way as displays the truth 
of the unity that we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have rescued us from such a helpless state that you have in Christ's death put our old self to to death and that in his resurrection, in our resurrection with him, you have given us a new self, that you are making us new and that though our pilgrimage on earth in this life can at times be difficult. We can strive forward knowing that there is a day that is coming where there will be no more death, no more tears, where we will finally be made perfect as we were supposed to be, where sin will no longer have a place in our lives, and where we will worship you face to face, surrounded by our brothers and sisters. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this, for your goodness, for your graciousness, for your mercy. Let us never forget the truth of your gospel and stir us up to love you more day by day. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your glorious Son and our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.